0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to
1: emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to another
0: amazing episode here at Feel and Film. I'm Patch and with me ready to swing into a great conversation is my best friend and high-flying co-host Aaron.
1: Well, with great podcast power comes great podcast responsibility, Patrick, and I am here for the (laughs) listeners tonight.
0: I'm so glad, because we need you. We need you now more than ever. You're the hero (laughs) we don't deserve. Wait, that's a different character, sorry.
1: (laughs) Wrong one, but almost equally as good. It's a lot (laughs) for me to say that.
0: (laughs) Well, this week and next week, now that we're on the subject, we will be covering the second of three live-action versions of our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, this one with Andrew Garfield under the mask. These come on the heels of both of us spending several hours of gameplay in the 2018 PlayStation game aptly named Marvel Spider-Man, and I, for one, am glad that we get to talk about it. It's honestly, Aaron, been such a fun ride to be able to talk about the game and really kind of revisit what I consider my favorite Spider-Man in Andrew Garfield and to know that, uh, you reminded me we were actually together when this movie came out. This one of the few movies that we've gotten to see together, which I thought was pretty fantastic. Yeah. And then to have you revisit these earlier, like last week, I think prior to mm-hmm. our bad education episode and being like, dude, these are wow. I didn't realize how good these were. And I said, well, let's podcast about them. And you're like, absolutely. This is one that I have no problem talking about in heavy detail. I've done it on um, a couple of other podcasts, and it's definitely high on my list. So I'm glad that we're actually getting a chance to sit down and talk about this one and the next one. Before we get into our spoiler-rific portion of our podcast, we'll start with our one-word takeaways. And Aaron, why don't you get us started with yours?
1: All right. Well, this was tough for me. Both of these decisions For this episode were incredibly challenging because I had so many options, just an overwhelming amount of choices. But my one word takeaway is magic. There are so many words that fit here, Patrick. So many. There's emotional, heartfelt, romantic, grounded, heroic. This movie is all of those things to me and a whole lot more, but magic sums up my experience in watching this twice in the past week as you mentioned and also for the first time since it came out since actually sitting in the theater with you in arkansas watching it in 2012 or whenever it was i don't dislike any of the spidey films in fact i like all of them quite a bit but truly in my heart of hearts i feel that this is the definitive version For me, it's a masterful mix of all of the elements that I need in a perfect live-action Spider-Man film. And it is complete with my favorite performance of that character by Garfield. It may not have some of the more singular, memorable scenes in Spidey's history, but I think that it's the sum of this movie's parts that makes it the greatest for me. And between us playing the PlayStation game, which... By the way, prior to recording tonight, I had to get on and virtually swing around. I actually muted it and had James Horner's Amazing Spider-Man score playing while I was doing it. Took a couple snapshots of the skyline, one connected to your connecting point, sent it to you. That was fun. And uh, I've been revisiting and falling head over heels in love with Into the Spider-Verse recently, and then now just seeing how incredible this movie is, I've transformed into a legitimate Spider-Man fan. Whereas before, I always liked the character, and now I just want to consume everything about him. I even started reading a book, Spider-Man and Philosophy, today, which is great. It's a bunch of essays. Uh, There's a whole series of these. I, I read the Batman and Philosophy one and loved it, and this one is, so far, holding up well. I put him right up there now with Batman and Captain America for me as favorite characters. And that is the kind of magic I'm talking about, that... A movie can evoke at certain times in our lives. And man, in this quarantine, we have mostly been discussing films that we love versus the high risk reward of newly released theatrical films. And it's really reminded me of what we started this podcast to do, which was be positive, talk about how movies make us feel, and spread the ones that we love by conversation. And I don't want to say that becoming a legit uh, or credentialed film critic who reviews new movies every week and covering what's hot in the industry on the podcast has ruined that because I don't think it has. But it does take away from us having this kind of experience as often when we're always in the theater. And frankly, I am beaming right now because I love this film so much and I know that you love this film so much and when we get to talk about a movie like this kind of film it is what I love the absolute most about this show. Well I can tell you
0: there were several things about what you said that I completely agree with and the word love is part of those things. It's definitely a subjective thing. Movies like this remind me a lot of our Perception of Batman v Superman against the, the the public perception, and it's fun to be able to defend that. I think we do it with the Fast and Furious franchise as well, and I'm grateful for our Facebook group that we can, well, in this case, you can light a match and just start a fantastic dialogue with different people who essentially want to quote fight you on whether or not this is a masterpiece, <clears throat> Don Cheadle, and. What makes it great is that at the end of all this, through all the memes and the GIFs and all these just snarky comments, which is aptly perfect because we're talking about Spider-Man, you have this spirit of, I can appreciate the fact that you love this. I don't. Not me, but one who would not. And I think you're right that movies like this, where we are together on something, but also in the minority in terms of how we feel about it allows us to spread the positive honesty and it gets us to a place where we can be reminded of the fact that we are feeling film and this movie makes me feel a lot of things the word that always comes to mind for me for my one word takeaway is the word grounded not being grounded by your parent but seeing a movie like this that feels tangible, which was surprising to me because when you think about Spider-Man as a character, especially coming on the heels of the Sam Raimi trilogy, you have that video game mentality. You have that cartoon mentality of this light as a feather person in bright red and blue flying through New York, shooting his webs and saving the day. Those are all key components of Spider-Man. And the thing is, I think the Amazing Spider-Man captures that, but on a different level, on a realistic level. When I watch the Amazing Spider-Man, it's definitely darker in terms of like the lighting, in terms of the costumes. You look at the red and blue, it's not bright. It's a deeper red, a deeper blue, a la my guy Superman. And... You have a character, even down to being able to feel like this guy could live in your city. This guy could be a hero in the big city of New York. And it makes me feel like I'm a part of this world that he's in. I'm not just watching a fantastic CGI-filled narrative play out. I'm seeing practicality. I'm seeing stunts. I'm seeing things like the webs fire up onto a crane or to a building. And then when he lets go of them, they just kind of float in the air. It feels like they actually landed somewhere and there are artifacts. And the thing is, Aaron, it's okay to have both. And when you can execute one style and surround it with a story that is compelling characters that are well-written, like Peter, like Gwen. You have an origin story that definitely has repetition from its predecessor, but it feels refreshing. And as our friend James Harleman talks about, stories aren't new. They're just refreshed. That ideas are not new. There's nothing new under the sun. So going into The Amazing Spider-Man, I felt like this was the Spider-Man that I wanted to connect with. Toby was fun, and Sam Raimi did a great job with his trilogy. Unfortunately, when your character is owned by a different company, and in order to retain rights, they have to continue to produce films every five to ten years, you're forced to get different iterations. And so it leads to these kinds of conversations like, which was better, which was worse. So, listeners, this is going to be part of the conversation. It's just a product of having, what, nine movies in, wait, seven? I get my math wrong. <laughs> three, two, and
1: Seven two. live action solo movies so far. Yes,
0: yeah. So, we'll yeah, we got the seven that exist between these three different Spider-Men. And as you said, I like all of them in different ways. I, I, I go on record by saying that I think Tom Holland is, for me, the perfect balance of Peter and Spidey, snark, lightheartedness, and the way he's portrayed through the style of the MCU, I think feels complete. But Andrew Garfield is always going to be my number one. And when we get into the spoiler part of our episode, I'll expand on why that is. So with that being said, it is now time for the fun part of the podcast, where we get to talk about the movie in detail. If you haven't seen this, please go out and do yourself a favor, check it out. Let us know what you think about it, if it's a first-time watch, or if uh, you're on the thread in the Facebook group that we're discussing it. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it, positive or otherwise.
1: Some positive ones would be really welcome, actually. (laughs) Actually, come come, come, share the love with me and Patrick, please.
0: (laughs) Otherwise, we'll live in the minority with that, but... (laughs) Well, to begin, one of the first things that makes this iteration unique, Aaron, is, as I've mentioned, how it feels more real in the vein of like the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. So what what Danny Elfman is to Christopher Nolan, I felt like Sam Raimi, not apples to apples, is to Mark Webb, where we go from a kind of a cartoonish, animated, comic book esque style to a more grounded, darker kind of tone and the accents of that live in the realistic stunts the practical effects things like that I was really really excited to see some of the montages because you know me and montages I love them but in particular watching Peter get kind of comfortable with his powers by combining this skateboard session with inside this warehouse where he's swinging from chains, things that feel like someone who has gained these powers is getting used to them. He's using real things. He's not shooting his webs yet. He hasn't discovered how to do that yet, but different moments like that, that remind me that this is a world that could exist. And the execution of that is one of those things where if it doesn't feel real and you're trying to sell a quote, real story, It kind of falls flat. This doesn't. Everything about the story reinforces that real factor, which is kind of ironic because we're talking about a superhero who flies from building to building to save the day. So I think that because of what Nolan did with the Batman trilogy, he kind of paved the way for a different kind of interpretation, one that felt more on the level, more foundational, one that focused on the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man in a world that 2012 reflected, not necessarily 1960 or just the comic book pages, but one that was kind of a different interpretation. And I wanted to know how this approach differed in your experience compared to the ones prior to and even after it.
1: Well, to be honest, I think that a lot about this movie stands out big time from the other versions. I think there are more similarities in marvel's mcu spider-man films and sam raimi's films than there are in comparisons to this movie and much like you were saying in your one word takeaway uh, the grounded nature of this action in this film i think makes it feel so much more believable i mean i like all kinds of comic book films and i like ones with amazing cgi action that treats its characters like gods I love Far From Home. It's in my top three or so live-action Spider-Man films. I mean, it is phenomenal for me. But I also like ones like this and the Dark Knight trilogy and Iron Man and Unbreakable, where what we see is just barely on the outskirts of reality, enough so that I think we could stretch our minds to believe that the science could get us there. And that everyday quality of a character living in his world in his mundane tasks of going to school and walking down the street, those kind of things are what helps you feel like you're Spider-Man as far as with the character going through what he's going through. And so for an origin story, it works perfectly. And and I'm also a sucker for origin stories. So I got to be honest, like that's one thing that I'm just automatically going to be drawn to. I love them. And then particularly with regards to this Spider-Man and his action swinging around fighting. It feels like he's learning and it's his imperfect attempts. His shots of putting us in the first person view as, as Spider-Man is swinging when Mark Webb does that, by the way, anyone named Webb who is directing a Spider-Man movie, like it is amazing by default period. Like you can't get around that. The, the perfect pairing is just amazing to me, but I love that. And I and I love the scene on the subway right after he gets bit where it's just this embarrassing moment. He doesn't know what's happening to his body. And he jumps up and sticks to the ceiling. And then he accidentally rips this girl's shirt off. And then he dodges a bunch of people trying to fight him. And he's apologizing the whole time because he doesn't know what he's doing. It's all reflex, right? And he reflexively kicks a bunch of ass. And then he's just in total shock. And I think Like, that felt to me very much like, okay, that seems like what might happen. And because it's gritty and dark in that cinematic way, it's not flashy. It's not all bright colors popping. It just feels more like you're really on a subway and less on a movie set to me. And it's not as crisp, I guess. You know, it's not as perfectly flashy And then, you know, similarly, his transformation in this film compared to some of the other ones, dude, it's like horrific to me. It's so grounded in that way that he he is sweating bullets and his body is like deteriorating and you can very clearly see it. He pulls a web like out of his skin. It's one of the grossest things I've ever seen in a superhero movie, by the way. I was like, that's disgusting. But because of that, it feels to me so just real. And, and I love it. I love that about it. And then I think that the, the backstory works really good here because we get a little bit of history with Peter's parents. And no matter what people want to say about ultimately the whole change in the DNA aspect, and we can get into that in our next episode. Cause that's where it's really dealt with the fact that only Peter essentially can become Spider-Man and not everybody. Kind of changes up a little bit of the way that Spider-Man maybe was created to be. But what we see here and how he gets left with his aunt and uncle, why that is, I think it's awesome because you can tell why Peter is scientifically inclined and it gives a bit of an aspect of destiny to him, which I think is always good for a heroic character. And of course, plenty of trauma for him to deal with as he's navigating his life.
0: Absolutely. When you look at this movie as a whole, it emphasizes the neighborhood Spider-Man, something that we talked about offline, and I'll go ahead and repeat here: is that what draws me to Spider-Man as a character is that he doesn't have to leave his city. He's not a global superhero. It doesn't have to be. At least, I was apprehensive when I saw Spider-Man: colon, Far From Home. I wanted to say, oh, no, no, no. Don't go far from home. Stay Stay in New York. (laughs) Stay in New York. Because the thing that appeals to me is the fact that he's fighting local people. He has all these incredible relationships with people around the city that interact with him as a character and build his history. If you read his comic book from the 60s all the way up to now, there are so many characters that are part of... New York, both friend and foe that amplify his story. The other great thing about having these iterations of Spider-Man is that they become interpretations. And I believe that Mark Webb took an interpretation and allowed for the ability to look at certain pieces and parts like this history with his parents, his scientific prowess his relationship with Ben and May, and put emphasis on those things, his relationship with Gwen as opposed to Mary Jane, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. All these things that feel less like what we're used to but still familiar because if you've read the comics or you're familiar enough with the comics or you've read certain runs, you know that these characters exist and we're not given an overwhelming cast of people. It's simple in its methodology. It's simple in its construction. And that's what's very appealing is that we can digest Peter learning to become Spider-Man. We're seeing him be this kind of, I won't call it emo, but kind of this hipster. No,
1: he's emo. It's okay. Is it... He is gangsty okay. as heck, man. He is straight out of Mark Webb's 500 Days of Summer. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And that may be something you have to get used to because on the surface, we know that Peter Parker is kind of nerdy, but something that appeals to me, and this will just get me into start gushing about Garfield as Peter. He's got a strength. He's got a confidence that lives right next door to his meekness. And that plays itself out early on when Flash is beating up this little dude and he's like flash stop hey flash stop and then he yells, eugene lay off and then he becomes the victim to me i see peter parker as being someone who even though he has to learn this lesson great power great responsibility he shows hints of that in him and it's kind of reinforced at the end of that conversation where <laughs> quinn tells him in class that was really stupid. It was really brave, but it was really stupid. And so there's this duality that lives in him where I think he's confident in who he is. He's just quirky. Like he is good at what he is, at what he does. He's good at being smart. He's good at being scientific. That shows a scene later when he's down in the basement and he just spouts off what he thinks is wrong with the water pump or water tank where it's starting to flood. And Uncle Ben says, "Yeah, I thought that's what it was too." Mark Webb is giving us little pockets of information about Peter that I think Garfield owns really, really well. I was reminded of his character um, Eduardo in The Social Network, only a little less confident. Like I felt like I was getting some of that from this performance. What I think Garfield does so well is that. He has these small mannerisms that look kind of awkward, but he's able to kind of execute those things in a way that make him feel appealing. He's a Peter Parker that's not trying to overcome his nerdiness. He's a Peter Parker that is just saying, look, I'm, I don't fit in with these guys, but I'm not an outcast either necessarily. In some ways he is, but for the most part, I think that. He feels approachable. That's what I'm getting at. He's a guy who you, if you didn't have friends, he would be a guy you'd want to hang out with because he knows what it means to do the right thing. Even though he doesn't have that from his parents, he gets that from Ben and May. And that's the other thing that I think is fantastic is that we get to see for at least the first third of the movie, this really, really great relationship that he has with his aunt and uncle, something that we don't really see in we definitely don't see it in the holland spider-man spider-man the spider-man movies but even with sam Raimi, we get a familiar story about ben and Aunt may and the movie kind of it kind of centers around ben's death and i felt like the amazing spider-man doesn't do that where it uses the death of ben as a means to project him forward but the bigger story is about understanding what it means to actively take care of other people.
1: Yeah. I love Garfield so much in this role too. And I, you know, part of that is because of the snarkiness and the angsty, as I saw him described on a letterbox review, he feels almost like he's Luke Perry from Beverly Hills 90210 wearing a Spider-Man mask. And I'm, I dig it. Like, and, and I get that people won't dig that. And people are going to be purists and say, that's not my Spider-Man. That's not the Spider-Man that I like from the comics, even though the comics have multiple different depictions of Spider-Man too. And when you choose for that not to be your Spider-Man, it's hard to want to engage with the movie. Right. And so I get it. But for me, it works like it does for you. And his physicality is a big part of that. Like playing the game that we have been on PS4 one of the things that really stands out is how muscular and ripped Spider-Man is. Like Peter Parker is legit, like, in shape as can be. And it's realistic. It makes sense if you think about it. How else is he going to do these things? Like, Yes, he has these abilities that are enhanced, but his body has to be able to handle that. His muscles and things have to be in really great shape. And I, the game makes it clear. There are ripples in his suits. For his abs and his, you know, pecs and biceps and such. Garfield, to me, makes that real. Garfield feels like he has the strength that Spider-Man would have. Whereas for me, someone like Tobey Maguire, I can't get there. I just can't. And it's not a knock on Toby as a person, but it's a knock on the casting. He looks so goofy and silly to me at all times. So childish that it's a silliness that I can't get past in a way that I can with Garfield and Holland again, like you said, is kind of a great middle ground of those two things. But yes, he's a wisecracking character and he's nerdy because he's smart. But I think that McGuire kind of swung that pendulum so far to the dorky side. And so when we see Garfield go darker for this tragic traumatic story was really great for me and then, you know, you can't really da- I know we're going to talk about later, but you can't really downplay the chemistry that he has with his love interest either, because I think that that is a big, big positive mark. And whether you're a Gwen Stacy or a Mary Jane Stan, it, it, you know, for film characters, it, you can't deny the immediate sparks that happen between Garfield and Stacy And that goes down to, again, with Mark Webb's direction and his familiarity with this type of story, it's something that he is good at, drawing that out. That romantic, kind of fiery, hot, passionate type of relationship. And we get to see it, and it fits, and it works really great in this particular universe. But I know we'll talk about Gwen later, and you mentioned Aunt May and Ben, and I gotta tell you, man, honestly... I think this is my favorite. I'm going to try and not say the word best because that just gets people fired up. But it is my favorite aunt and uncle in the film universe for sure. Literally every single scene with them in it was a contender for my connecting point. And that's not an exaggeration. They're not in the movie a ton. But seriously, like every single thing that they said and did felt like a connecting point to me. Uncle Ben reminding May that they too were once young and dangerous. There's so much like nuance in the writing of this film. And and it it actually boggles my mind, Patrick, when people are on their reviews talking about how poorly this film is written. I I don't, I don't get it. I do not understand it. I actually think it is maybe the best written Spider-Man film we've ever had, even over Spider-Verse in that area. There is so much nuance there's this great basement conversation between Ben and Peter, right? You actually talked about it earlier where Ben is asking him about the fight that he got into with Flash and there's just a throwaway line where he says, you know, don't tell Aunt May because she might go after the guy. And you so you're 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 starting to get like building of these characters, right? Through conversations with other characters. And that's really a strong Showing of good writing because you don't have to have a whole scene that tells you Aunt May is super protective because now we know Aunt May is protective because Ben said one line to Peter in the basement. These are the things that stuck out to me. I, I've watched it twice in a week, so bear with me here because like all of this stuff is like definitely heightened for me. And then like at the end of the movie, or I guess it's, I guess it's not the end, but it's in the middle. Um, Peter comes back these little subtleties where he misses dinner and Ben talks about this meatloaf and Aunt May says, well, you should have told me that 37 years ago that you didn't like my meatloaf. And she goes, how many meatloaves have I made for you? It is a two to three second scene, Patrick, but I get so much character building about their relationship and their love for each other in that one line that it is astounding to me. There's a great moment with Ben where he sees Gwen for the first time in the school. And he says, she looks familiar. She's the girl on your computer. (laughs) And then he goes over and he points at Gwen. He's like, he's got you on his computer. And he, he makes up some dumb lie. I'm his probation officer. Patrick, this is exactly what my dad would do. Yep. I would agree. (laughs) A hundred percent. Like I was, it reminded me of a of a moment where I was in a movie theater and there was a, a girl a couple down a couple aisles in front of us and I was like man she's she's hot or something and he's like we well, should go talk to her and I'm like dad you don't just randomly go talk to a girl in a movie theater like yeah, that's not how it works and and mind you I'm a teenager okay people I'm not like an adult with my adult dad I am a teenager. And so he walks up to her and he's like, "Hi, my son's too embarrassed to come talk to you himself, <laughs> but he thinks you're really pretty and he wants to say hi." And I'm just like, "Dad!" Like I'm dead. I'm de- I'm like pour- pouring a literal full bucket of popcorn over my head, and I just want to die. I, it is awful. So like that yeah. moment, that moment really resonated with me because I was like, "Ben's a dad." You know, he he's an uncle, but he's a dad. Um, and then. Dude, the whole thing, this was so close to being my connecting point, but when he gives Peter the speech and the way in which this film handles the great power, great responsibility moment, Ben says, he's talking to him about his dad because Peter's like really upset. He's like, he wants to know what's going on with them. He doesn't understand. And he says, he tells Peter, you are a lot like your father. You really are, Peter. And that's a good thing. But your father, by a philosophy, a principle really, he believed that if you could do good things for other people, you had a moral obligation to do those things. That's what's at stake here. Not choice, responsibility. I love it, man, because he doesn't, we don't reuse the same line and have to find a way to like make it all fancy or new and exciting for a new audience. It's the same concept. It's the same meaning. But it is in such a heartfelt, different way. And, and that happens right before he dies, right? And it's also elevated in my opinion because when, when Peter is going for this milk and, and this annoying stupid cashier won't let him take a penny because he's not spending 10 bucks, which is the dumbest store policy, by the way. Like I get why Peter would be frustrated by that. And the robber throws him the milk after he robs the store. And the store owner's like, help me, help me, right? And Peter goes, he, he snarkily, he's Peter, Peter. He responds as Peter would. He says, not my policy. Throwing back the line at him. And of course, you know, it leads to Ben getting killed. And there's this great moment where Peter listens to this voicemail that Ben had sent him before that. And he plays the first line and all it says is, Peter, I know things have been difficult lately and I'm sorry about that. And then Peter cuts it off. And later down the line, we get to hear the rest of that. And again, it's, I would seriously Patrick, I could have made like so many of these moments. All of them were connecting points for me. But when we eventually get to hear that after the funeral and we get to find out like what Ben thought about Peter. Because it's sad. It's sad that we ne- he never gets to fully explain it to him. But he gets. luckily he had this voicemail. And it reminds me of a voicemail I had from my mom. After my mom passed away. And it is Mother's Day too. Go figure. Um, I had a, a voicemail from her that was just one of the sweetest things. I think it was a happy birthday message. And I kept it for four or five years after she died. On my phone. And finally I think I got a new phone and it ultimately got wiped out unfortunately. But... I kept it. I just would not delete it. And I would listen to it. And it reminds me of this. And that's what I think Peter would be doing, honestly. But that message, he says, Peter, I know things have been difficult lately for you. And I'm sorry about that. I think I know what you're feeling. Ever since you were a little boy, you've been living with so many unresolved things. We'll take it from an old man. Those things send us down a road. They make us who we are. And if anyone's destined for greatness, it's you, son. You owe the world your gifts. You just have to figure out how to use them and know that wherever they take you will always be here. So come on home, Peter. I'm not going to get emotional. You're my hero, and I love you. And I'll tell you what I love about this, Patrick. What I love about this is that this doesn't happen before he dies. We don't get this great proclamation that Peter can reflect back on this conversation and use it as motivation to go become who he becomes. He becomes who he becomes naturally, and it all comes full circle in that it just so happens he becomes the person that Ben saw in him in the first place, and it gets confirmed by this message. I, I love it, man. And May tells him at one point, "Secrets have a cost; they're not free, not now, not ever." It's a beautiful line. She tells him, "Peter, if there's one thing you are, it's good." Anyone who has a problem with that can come talk to me. She's protective of him, just like she, like Ben said she would be. Dude, everything about this relationship to me is fire and it is like just so far and above any other depiction of them that I've gotten to see before.
0: Well, you're right. And it's not any less thoughtful with the other iterations, but Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, Aunt May is an old woman. And in the video game, she's that way. She serves a different purpose for Peter in each one of these retellings. She's a lot younger in the MCU Spider-Man and she serves a different purpose, not only for Happy's romantic interest, but she feels appropriately aged for this teenage Spider-Man. Excuse me, teenage Peter. When you look at these two actors, playing his aunt and uncle the way in which they interact with each other they feel seasoned they feel like they've been together for a long time they know each other's quirks they know how to talk with each other the moment that we get introduced to ben he's bringing up these trophies and may is like get those off my table they're dirty why do you have them up here and he's like these are my bowling trophies you know and he's very proud of them I think Martin Sheen, I just adore Martin Sheen anyway, but he's a fantastic Ben. And what I like about the movie is that there's not really a lot of dwelling on Ben's death necessarily. It's not, as I mentioned before, a driving force. It is a part of this evolvement of of Peter into Spider-Man. But what Toby Maguire does in his performance, that whole first movie, is him trying to reconcile that death. And it's at the forefront, whereas you have this iteration. There's a lot more going on. There are other relationships that Peter has that we get introduced to and become part of this journey that he's on. Aaron, you mentioned that. Peter did these things. Peter grew. And I think that's where the movie really shines in. In Justice League, there was a line that Bruce Wayne says, we need Clark Kent as much as we need Superman. I don't remember the line exactly. Yeah. But it reminded me of the fact that when you have these alter egos, there is a lot of emphasis on the superhero as opposed to the man in disguise. And I appreciate stories that talk about Clark Kent. Just like I appreciate stories that focus on Peter Parker. And that's where I think his connection with Ben and Aunt May really finds its reality. When Ben sends that message, he doesn't know Peter is Spider-Man. Peter doesn't know he's Spider-Man. Everything he says about Peter is about Peter, not about Spider-Man. When he's referring to his gifts and being great, he's not referring to him in the fact that he has these spider powers. No. He's a scientist. He's innovative. He knows how to see things at different angles. He knows how to act and react in different situations. And what I think, Aaron, is we see someone who is not learning to be Spider-Man. He's learning to use the character traits of Spider-Man to be more Peter Parker. In other words, like when he gets on the subway and he starts that really funny fight. Yes, there is a messiness to it. But he knows how to defend himself. He knows how to take care of himself. He's been in fights with Flash Thompson, obviously. We see these points in the movie that really help us understand that Peter Parker is not just a pushover. He's not one-dimensional. He can't be defined by one thing. And by the end of the movie, the Spider-Man persona helps amplify more of who Peter Parker is. To me, I think that's where... Gwen Stacy fell in love with him when the movie came out. I remember loving the fact that we're not getting an MJ story because that's really what dominates a lot of the comic book world is Pete's relationship with MJ. They get married at some point. I don't know if they have kids, but that that was retcon. It's always been Pete and MJ, Pete and MJ. But early on in the comic book run, it was Pete and, and Gwen. Pete and Gwen. In fact, uh, I recommended a a limited series, six issue limited series called Spider-Man Blue that focuses on this story. And that comic book series was what made me fall in love with Spider-Man because I wasn't getting the typical bitten by a radioactive spider. Mary Jane doesn't know who he is and then she finds out and now she's becoming the damsel in distress. What we get with Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy is someone that I want Pete to be with someone who adores Peter who fell in love with Peter Parker not Spider-Man in fact she went on record just after the movie came out and said Mary Jane fell in love with Spider-Man Gwen Stacy fell in love with Peter this is Peter's story This isn't Spider-Man's story. This is Peter's story. Spider-Man is an extension of that. And when we look at the relationship between him and Gwen, what we get is something that I feel like is a genuine growth where she's kind of awkward. He's kind of awkward. That scene you mentioned earlier where (laughs) Uncle Ben embarrasses him. They then, I think it's that same scene where he says, he tries to ask her out and they actually never get to a plan a or a plan b they say do you want to she's like yeah and he goes or we could just she goes yeah we could probably do that it's like, okay let's do that i mean they never say what they're gonna do but they you can tell they both are just enamored with each other for these different varying reasons and i I love seeing that Gwen can take care of herself, that she's not the damsel in distress. Even though sometimes she gets in herself, gets herself into precarious situations, she comes across as someone who is her own woman. I mean, look at who her dad is. She's strong, but she also recognizes that Peter is someone that she could be stronger with. And I think that's what makes me attracted to their relationship more so than his and MJ's is because their relationship was built on not a superhero relationship, but on regular people doing amazing things together.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, I 100% agree with you. I mean, I have been gushing about Gwen Stacy since I started rewatching this. And then I love the point about her being independent because that shows up a couple different places in this movie and it's going to really show up in the next movie. But in this one at the end, when she refuses to leave Oscorp, he's like, get out of there. It's dangerous. And she's like, Nope, I'm going to make sure people get out of here safely. Like she doesn't even think it is ingrained in who she is as well. And because of course she does. She's a Quinn freaking Stacy. Right. And, and that is an attractive quality. And it's that quality that actually has me feeling very, Gwen Stacy vibes from the way that MJ is depicted in the Spider-Man game. I almost think she's like a perfect mix of the two. She's strong and independent and she will give Pete what's what uh, you just wait, Patrick, you got some great dialogue coming for you. But in but she's also this reporter who she's going to go in there and she's going to like poke around and try to figure things out. So she's not a scientist like Gwen is in the same, way that peter is but she she shares the reporting side um in the game and i just love the way that she's depicted and so it it makes me think about gwen here and i i love it so much more than most mj depictions that i've ever had i think it really elevates this film because she's such a good match for this peter parker and again that's really what we're talking about here it doesn't these are characters that have been depicted so many different times and in so many different ways and if we want to keep enjoying Spider-Man media, it has to be reinvented, and we have to get new takes on the character people. That's why MJ is different in the Tom Holland films. We've got to change things up, or it's just doing the same thing over and over again, and we're going to get bored, right? Like, that's why it's okay to love Tim Burton's Batman movies and Chris Nolan's Batman's movies. That's why they're different. Like why I'm still excited for the next Batman movie, because it's going to be slightly different take on the character. So Gwen here fits like a glove with Garfield and it's because of that chemistry I mentioned earlier and I think because they can relate. Actually, when Emma Stone was interviewed after the film, someone asked her, why do you think Peter is attracted to Gwen? And this is, this is what she is portraying the character with this in mind. She said, I think elements of Gwen and her family life are something that Peter didn't necessarily have That sense of stability. I know that Aunt May and Uncle Ben are a very stable environment for him, but he has abandonment issues. He was abandoned by his parents when he was five, so he doesn't feel like he can be really completely honest with Uncle Ben and Aunt May. And you see that when Uncle Ben comes in and asks, why don't you talk about this and Peter won't do it. He doesn't feel comfortable talking about that pain with them. He sees someone steady in Gwen and can understand what it's like to lose a father on a daily basis, because she doesn't know if he's going to come home to her every day either. So she feels that sense of abandonment as well. They're so, so different, but yet they also relate on their love of learning and things like that. And so she becomes a confidant and someone he can trust. And I agree with all of that. Um, and, I, and I think that that she gives him this dynamic of a person he can rely on and tell about how he feels. And... I love that he comes out to her in mid-movie, right? Like, we get a ton of this film where she knows who he is. It's not beat around the bush. It's not like this, I'm going to try and keep this secret from you for a long period of time. And it was almost another connecting point, of course, because it's an amazing, awesome scene, which I'm not shocked because Mark Webb, where he's hurt and well, there's two actually one where they're on the balcony after the fight where he gets into it with her dad and argues about the, you know, Spider-Man being a vigilante and whether or not that's okay or not, which is great. And he goes out to get some air and she comes out there and it is the most romantic, sweet thing, the way he webs her and spins her to him. And they don't he doesn't say it right. It's just very clear what has happened and what is going on and it's beautiful and the other one is after he's fought Connors and he comes in through her window and she's like doing email and homework and not looking at him and she's talking to him like it's just another day and he's like falling in like completely cut up and just totally beat to crap and it's this great moment both it's romantic and it's uh it's hilarious all at the same time because her dad comes down the hall and says, no, dad, and she, he's like, do you want hot cocoa? <laughs> and she opens the door and says, no, dad, I do not want cocoa. Honestly, I'm 17 years old because she's trying to hide Peter, which is like the perfect dialogue for what an actual 17-year-old would kind of say and act like if they were hiding a boy in their room. And he's like, okay, I just thought I remembered somebody saying last week that their fantasy was to live in a chocolate house. And she's like, well, that's impractical. And she shuts the door and then she always back up and fattening <laughs> and she closes it. It's one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie battery. And Peter looks at her and he goes, chocolate house. <laughs> and it, it just felt so real, but it ends with this kiss and this confliction about what's going to happen. And she expresses, her fear of abandonment. And she says, you know, I know my dad's, I don't know if my dad's going to come home every day. And now I'm going to have to do with that with you. And how does it end? It ends with him swinging her out into the moonlight. And it is awesome. And I buy it all because I feel like she embodies this character that is a perfect, like I said, match a perfect glove for him. And so it's wonderful. Um, and I think, I think part of it also is just because she's a great actress, Patrick. I, I think that it shines through. Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone are more talented actors and actresses, actress than maybe we've ever seen in these roles. And it may be early in their career, but they have obviously gone on to amazing, amazing success. And I think that it helps them nail the nuances and the details of these characters in a way that obviously it like makes me connect.
0: Absolutely. You look at both of them and see how their careers have basically, I won't call it skyrocket, but how how successful they've been, not as a result of the amazing Spider-Man or the amazing Spider-Man Two, but we got hints of what their greatness could be in this movie. We get the snark of Gwen Stacy and her lightheartedness, and we see that echoed in Crazy Stupid Love and La La Land. That kind of innocence but energetic type of flavor lives in Gwen Stacy, that confident but still kind of unsure at times personality. Andrew Garfield's the same way. Again, seeing him as Eduardo Saverin in the social network, a smart guy. Who has to deal with a world around him that is completely different than what he's expecting and having to overcome that. Obviously, that movie wasn't about just him or even about him at all, but we got to see Andrew Garfield play a character who articulates a sense of trying to get through and overcome these great odds, not on a superhero level, but we see hints of that live in his role as Peter Parker. I think what appeals to me more than anything about their relationship is that it feels like a teenage relationship. It feels like a couple of juniors and seniors that are trying to navigate this relationship with (laughs) an overbearing dad or a school environment that may or may not be, Conducive to them having a good relationship or having characters like Flash Thompson in their life or in Pete's life, at least that could disrupt what a good life at school could be. And I think that's really interesting. We have these two additional characters in the form of Captain Stacy and Flash that are peppered throughout the story. And I see them defining Peter in and of themselves. I think Flash is more than just a bully that Pete overcomes. There's this fantastic moment where just after Ben dies and you see Peter exchanging his books in his locker and Flash comes over and has the sympathy for him. Pete grabs him with his Spider-Man strength and throws him up against the locker. And Flash essentially says, I'm sorry, Pete. I know. I know you're upset and I'm sorry. And he puts him down. And he walks away. And then later on at the end of the movie, (laughs) Pete looks at, he sees, uh, he sees Flash in the, in the hallway and Flash has that great Spider-Man t-shirt on and he goes, cool t-shirt. He goes, man, yeah, he's awesome. And you feel like with that relationship, not knowing what's coming in the next movie, that it's not just a resolution of their relationship, but it's an understanding that Peter isn't just someone that can be beat up on. Obviously, he can kick anybody's butt. We see how Flash is becoming part of Peter's world, not just as another student in school, but someone who can be a part of his world. And that kind of plays itself out in the comic books in different ways. And then there's Captain Stacy, who we see gets to an understanding with peter after he realizes that he's spider-man and it's less surface level like jameson is with peter where he's a nemesis he's a nemesis and he becomes kind of a foil form captain stacy becomes kind of that representation of a city that doesn't understand who spider-man is and i think that in his own way, he represents the embodiment of a city that comes to understand Pete and Spider-Man as a hero for the city and not a vigilante. And I think both of them really do enhance Pete's character arc and allow him to get to the point that he gets to by the end of the movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, I fully, definitely wholeheartedly agree with that. I don't think that it is a perfect movie without them. I mean, I think that, Those two relationships round out the character of Peter and his arc in a way that makes him so much more whole than if we were just focused on the normal relationship of he and his girlfriend and he and his aunt and uncle that he's living with. And Peter's trying to become Spider-Man with those two people. The Flash thing is very brief. There's not a lot of content there. Which is fine. I don't need there to be for this one. You know, I mean, he he calls out that he knows Flash's real name. Again, Patrick, I got to tell you, man, I feel like the writing is so incredible in this film. Because what that tells us by just him using his name in that moment is it tells us there's a history there. Without going through a big, long speech about how they have a history, it tells us, guess what? These guys knew each other. There was something... About their relationship before this moment where he's being treated this way by Flash. There's a past. And it, it's amazing. The scene of him beating him in basketball is, is hilarious. It's probably my least favorite scene in the film because I think it's the one place that the effects just do not hold up. I laugh because it's so bad every single time. I'm just like, gosh, no. So I just don't like this, either. but I like what it is getting at like him embarrassing flash on his turf without having to beat him up essentially and then that moment when flash comes and slams him up on the locker like you said he while being slammed he doesn't fight back what he does is very quiet quietly he says feels good doesn't it i'm sorry i'm sorry your uncle died again it's a very subtle In the way that it shows us how Flash feels about being aggressive towards people. It tells us why he is the way he is. He's like, this feels good. Feels good to show rage and to take it out on another person, doesn't it? Even in a moment when he's not the one doing it. But he is understanding what Pete is feeling. And for me, I immediately got the sense that, you know what, this dude probably knows loss too. I'm not getting that story right now. But clearly he can relate and, and he's telling us he relates through that action. It's how freaking high schoolers talk. Like it's how they communicate. And I picked up on it so well. And that last moment is hilarious with Flash. Like you said, um, what he actually tells him, by the way, cause it's great when he tells it, when he sees him wearing that spotty shirt is he's like, yeah, dude's crazy and chicks dig him, which is the most Flash line. It's perfect. It is, it's just, it's freaking perfect. And the whole Captain Stacy storyline was another, like, could have been my connecting point. The whole thing. When Peter gets caught by him and the cops, and he's kind of backwards, and the only way he can figure to get out of this is to reveal himself, and he pulls that mask back and shows him who he is and trusts. He's going to let him go. But he says, he says, I need to go save your daughter. And the only way it's going to happen is if you let me go right now. And of course, obviously he's going to let him go, but there's a great callback at the end. When Stacy has gone up to save Peter, Gwen has come out. She has the serum. She's like here, or the antidote, any serum or whatever it is antidote. And she's like, go help him. Right. And he's going up there to do it. And, and he, he, essentially works with Peter to fight this villain off in a very um, Commissioner Gordon and Batman kind of way. And he dies in Peter's arms, but not before handing him his mask back and saying, I was wrong about you, Peter. This city needs you here. You're going to need this. You're going to make enemies. People will get hurt. Sometimes the people closest to you. So I want you to promise me something, okay? And he says, leave Gwen out of it. Promise me that, huh? You promise me. And it's powerful. It's emotional. And it's like the most perfect moment of somebody doing what you just pointed out, where he comes to understand that there's something special about what Peter is trying to do, and that there is something necessary, and that it is not just vigilanteism in a way that is dangerous to what the police stand for but there's that personal connection because it's his daughter and there's an amazing amount of foreshadowing right there you know what I mean it's really great writing I just keep saying it over and over but that's what it is it's giving us these little nuggets and planting these little seeds and I feel like maybe for some reason that It's just not handled at all with this amount of subtlety in so many other films. I feel like they beat us over the head with, ha ha, guess what's coming next? But in this one, it's like, oh, that's a realistic thing someone would say. And it also serves the purpose of giving us that dire warning about what's coming up. Absolutely.
0: One of the things that stands out to me about Captain Stacy, and this was sort of articulated with, One of Don's critiques is that it's Dennis Leary being Dennis Leary. Yeah, it is to an extent. Dennis Leary is a snarky, hard-nosed guy. That's who Captain Stacy is. I don't think if you put somebody else in that role where he's taking a shotgun and just going to town on Kirk Connors as the lizard, I don't know that I could believe anybody but Dennis Leary doing that. He's a hard man and he needed to have that thick skin in order to be softened by that moment. By the end of the movie where he realizes, you know what, my daughter, even if I'm around, she's gonna need other people to protect her because she's crazy too. (laughs) She's someone who stays in a lab that's going to explode or all these different things. And I don't know that I would like anybody else in that role as Captain Stacy, because when you see him contrasted with her, with Emma Stone's portrayal of Gwen Stacy, it makes sense of an overprotective father in his relationship with his daughter. And I liked seeing him in that role. So to me, it was a win. It's like when you put Nick Cage in Con Air. It makes sense because it's Nick Cage being Nick Cage. Sometimes you just have to pick the guy that's going to fit that role. Keanu Reeves is the same way. He's in a lot of movies that put him in the same kind of role. Why? Because he fits that. Dennis Leary has been on crime shows. He's been an actor in positions of authority. And that's what we get. We get Dennis Leary being Dennis Leary. I wouldn't expect anything less from him than to be a hard-nosed guy. And it leads to that moment that you talked about where he eventually softens up and he says, you know what? We're on equal footing. Pete, I trust you. I trust you with my daughter. I I trust you with the city. And he hands up that mask. It's such a great moment where he gives it back because he's not saying, hide yourself. He's saying, be who you are, Peter, Peter, Peter. Yeah.
1: (laughs) He is. And I I just want to point out, like, A like what you're saying about him being himself you're absolutely right he is the star character in a show called fdny about new york department firefighters and everyone knows that new york their firefighting and their police departments are incredibly close they work together all the time this feels like an extension of that character there's this is what happens like he's really good at that so yeah and he's really good at in this movie too duh But that scene, that scene of him giving it back, I feel like it's so comparable to what we see in like Spider-Man 2, where the end of that film, the citizens who Spider-Man has saved collectively come together and choose to protect his identity because they understand how important it is for him to save them. And the, the act of Captain Stacy doing that in this film, it's like a stand in for the city of New York. He is doing it for the city. Right. He is one of their lead police officers sworn to serve and protect them. And so he is making that decision to make sure the city is protected. It's the same concept, along with another awesome scene in the film that kind of goes along with that. But like it is beautiful because we're getting the exact same message of what we got that was so powerful at that ending of Spider-Man Two, Sam Raimi's version, but a different way. Yeah, it's innovative. It's it's unique and it's it's beautiful.
0: If there could be another word to sum up my experience with this, it would be endorsement because there's a lot of that that's going on. You look at that moment. That's an endorsement of Peter by Captain Stacy via or by New York via Captain Stacy. There are other moments where there's an endorsement of what Peter is doing from Gwen when he reveals who she is. She doesn't tell him, "Hey." this is not cool. (laughs) You're going to get yourself hurt or you're Peter Parker. You can't be a superhero. No. I mean, she's incredibly surprised and of course, you know, stupid in love. So what are you going to do? But even with his relationship with Ben, not knowing that he's going to become Spider-Man, Ben endorses him with that voicemail. Aunt May endorses him with how she takes care of him. There's just this endorsement of him being completely, Moved forward in his character arc by saying, You have to be who you are. You have to be who you are. And that's challenged with the only other character that I don't think we've talked about, which is Kirk Connors, aka the lizard. It's interesting. We've had this bulky conversation about all these characters that Pete has interacted with, and we haven't even talked about the quote villain of the movie. And I put villain in air quotes because yes, the back half of the movie feels pretty straightforward. The villain's gone. Thank, done his you. Thing. Thank you. But the way in which he, we've gotten to this point doesn't feel that way. Kurt Connors, and I'm going back to Spider-Man Blue, this was pulled almost directly from Spider-Man Blue. Peter has a sympathetic relationship for Kurt Connors. He sees him as this incredible guy. He's got a relationship with him via his dad, helps him figure out this formula. And together they're working on solving a problem that could change the world. And in his own way, Kurt is fighting his own battle because what he intends for good ends up taking him over and he sees for evil. The execution of that becomes this serum or this cloud of whatever that is going to turn the whole city into, into lizards. And that feels somewhat formulaic. It's still in a grounded city of New York. It's not he's taking over the whole world, which I'm still excited about. The fact that we don't have this taking place in Asia and Europe and all over the world or in space in all these different uh galaxies, it's happening in New York. And really with the movies that we've seen in the last 20, 30 years, it's entirely possible for something like this to happen in New York because it's New York, right? Anything is possible. We've had the Ghostbusters for goodness sake. But Kurt Connors comes across as a very sympathetic character. And we see a couple of moments where he is fighting with himself. He's fighting with this thing that has actually healed him in a way, given him his arm back, made him complete, but is now taking over. It's essentially a Jekyll and Hyde kind of relationship. And the res- resolution of that is not necessarily that he gets better. No, he gets put in a hospital And he has this overwhelming guilt that he feels for what's happened with with Peter and what's happened with this whole experiment. But watching him and Pete interact with each other, I couldn't help but feel like he is a tragic ally for Pete. And there's a part of me that felt empathetic towards him and what eventually happened to him because in his heart of hearts, he didn't want to become this thing. He didn't want to become this lizard that wanted to essentially gain power over the city of New York because he thought, you know what, if they take this serum, they're going to really re-evolutionize humanity and it's going to be a lot better. That was never Kirk Connors' intent. And that really kind of reinforces the fact that we have distinct personalities with Pete and Spider-Man Kurt Connors and the lizard are two different people They have different motives. They embody the same person. It's just like, you know, the Hulk and banner. How do they coexist? Pete and Spider-Man are learning to coexist in this movie. Kurt and the lizard don't. And it's still a similar kind of conflict, but what we see is a success on one side and a failure on another. And I didn't connect that until this last time around saying, you know what? Kurt's dealing with the same thing. He's got power now. What does he do with it? Well, he's using it for evil. It's taken over him instead of him taking over it.
1: Yeah, I didn't connect it either until these last two viewings. And it actually was the thing that going back and looking at my old reviews and thoughts on this film was the thing that I found a big weak point in was I was like, oh, the villain sucks in this one. Actually, it's completely reversed for me now because I feel like it's a strong quote unquote villain because of what you're describing and because he's empathetic we have feelings for this man if you actually pay attention to this movie and it's subtle it's not all on the surface like just forced at you in a big speech right we see him when he meets peter we get the nuanced explanation that he was angry that peter's dad took his research away and disappeared because this affected his ability to heal himself and others. And so he stayed away from Peter and his family. So again, we kind of get this backstory on why he is who he is like in another world, Patrick, that's what's so beautiful about this. We both love what if stories. What if Richard had never left or what if Richard and Kurt Connors had continued working together? Kurt Connors is probably on a path to being like an uncle, for Peter, right? Like, they would have had a great relationship. They had so much in common. And when Peter asks him what the side effects would be if it worked, and we get that little understanding that nobody's survived, and Peter's like Th- mm-hmm. thinking to himself, oh, yeah, well, I've survived, obviously. But when you watch how his arc goes, he is successful with that mouse in using it with the lizard DNA. And because Ratha comes in and demands him to begin human trials immediately, Connors refuses. Like we have to acknowledge here that this is a quote unquote villain who is getting his start because he is refusing to hurt people. (laughs) That's not normal. That's not a usual villain backstory. Okay. He becomes a villain. Essentially he turns into a monster because he refuses to do the evil thing. And yet then he rushes he won't or he won't rush the tra- testing procedures and so he's like well i've got to try it on myself in order to be able he wants to go stop ratha from using it on the vet, the vets right like he wants to protect people and i think that's what makes it such a tragedy is like you said because then it takes him over and it it affects him in a way that is not what he wants it's not who he was But unlike Peter, it doesn't enhance the strength of his moral character. It gives him a potential to, you know, go about extra violent rage towards Ratha. And eventually, it sort of just takes over his brain and begins to, like, push him towards this other path of of making everybody this way. And it it is. It's ultimately an incredible incredible tragedy because he does want to save other people and he just wants to get his arm back and he has done it in a way that is incredibly straight and narrow up until this point right and so the real villain here is rotha because rotha creates him by way of threatening innocence and kurt has to act and then tragically gets sucked into becoming the bad guy so I'm so glad that you feel the same way and that you brought that up because again I see people criticize this all the time and I I myself did too when I watched it for the first time but man no longer and now I, I'm just like "Uh, I just I my heart hurts for him and I wish for a totally different relationship where it's like just another person that Peter lost that could have been a wonderful confidant and someone that related to him and he doesn't get to have that Um,
0: I think before we get into connecting point, I wanted to bring up just some of the technical stuff that I found really, really cool. There's a lot of criticism for James Horner. I think that one of the criticisms in our Facebook group was that he was sort of plagiarizing his own work, which I picked up on, but it's beautiful work. And if it's your own, why not reuse it? Hans Zimmer does the same thing from gladiator to power to the Caribbean there's a similar theme that's that's picked up on. If they work in one place and work in another, that's pretty fantastic. I don't think he won any Academy Awards for that, and that's okay. But before Zimmer came along, James Horner was the guy that I listened to a lot. And he's got a very nice, soft touch with his way of composing. He uses a lot of piano And in particular, I really enjoyed the soundtrack or the score for this. I felt like it was very balanced with what was happening. There are, while there's nothing specific that stands out to me like a particular track, I think overall, it stands as a great complement to the overall
1: story. Dude, I couldn't agree more. I think it is understated, maybe is the word, but it is softer than many of the Spider-Man kind of themes the main anthems that you really latch onto and you're like, oh, that's Spider-Man. It's quieter than that, but it is perfectly utilized in all of the moments where the score really shines through. I think it's great, too. That's why I said I put it on and swung around New York in the video game before this. I also really like the soundtrack. Again, I think that's Mark Webb shining through his soundtrack to 500 Days of Summer. The one that's put together is phenomenal and a big part of what makes that film incredible there's a cold play song that comes into effect here that i absolutely love i'll talk about that later but yeah man there's there's just so much about this we've gone on so long already but the couple couple last things and i'll try to stop gushing i love early on another example of this great writing when peter goes to oscorp and he's trying to get his badge and there's this great little banter with the receptionist and she says to him, are you having trouble finding yourself? It's like a great double meaning, right? Because he's about to go in there and end up getting spidered. <laughs> I don't think that's a word. He's about to get bit. But like she says it and it applies to him trying to find his badge at that moment because he doesn't have one. He's trying to you know, fake his identity essentially. But like there's it's, the way the camera focuses in on her face and close up. Are you having trouble finding yourself? It's like she's talking to him and we know what she means, right? We understand where this is going to go. Beautiful, beautiful writing. Um, I love his first foray into crime fighting. He goes without a mask and he's trying to find, almost said Joe Chill. He's trying to find the guy who killed Ben, not Batman's parents. And he has to run from a gang of thugs and he does all this freaking sick, like practical effect parkour stuff. And he's like running and then boom, this hilarious moment where he falls through the roof and he gets up and he's in a wrestling rink. And it's a total callback to the comics, right? And the stories of Peter Parker and Spider-Man's origin where that was a big part of it. And this thug says to him, I know what you look like. I've seen your face. And he looks up in this wrestling rink on the wall and he sees this poster of these luchadors with these masks on. And that's what triggers him going, Oh, ding, I need to do that. I need to make a costume. I need to protect my identity. It's handled so well. I love seeing people at the police station when the captain is walking I might have been in the courthouse actually, but Captain is walking out, and it's the first time he's like talking up to the media about how Spider-Man is a criminal or a vigilante and he can't be going around doing what he's doing. And he Spider Man drops this webbed criminal down from the roof and just like dangles him in front of him. And then you see this great, again, angled shot cinematically where the director focuses in and shows like a first person point of view of somebody from the crowd whipping up a cell phone camera to take a video. And you just see Garfield's Spider-Man scamper across the skyline and then like whoop and then like web out of the picture. It's, it's fantastic. It is so much like a comic book frame. There's the great moment where he is in the back of the car and I know people this is probably the snark level that people don't like but I freaking live for and he's like talking trash to this guy who's like breaking into his car he's just sitting in the back seat and he gets out and he's fighting him and the guy pulls out a knife he goes no my weakness is small knives anything but small knives (laughs) and he's like you know webs him up and then like webs him in the nuts it's great stuff great stuff. Um, and then lastly, I, I'll stop, is the cameo of all cameos. This has got to be one of the top tier Stan Lee cameos ever. He's fighting Kurt Connors in the high school, and there's this big bombastic blockbuster action scene, and then we f- fight, flow into the library, and there's Stan Lee in the center of the frame and he's got headphones on and there's a music playing so we can. it's like we're listening to what Stan's listening to and in the back you just see (laughs) Spidey and the lizard is moving around and fighting around like crazy and everything's just getting like desks are thrown everywhere lamps and books are going this way and that and Stan Lee's just completely oblivious and then walks out like never knew anything happened this entire fight happened behind him absolutely top-notch stuff I I can keep going on but I'll stop I'd forgotten about the Stanley cameo
0: before I watched it this weekend and, uh, I was pleasantly surprised when I saw that. I was like, oh yeah, I remember that because he's in everything. And so it was definitely fun to see that. Also, great cameo in the Spider-Man game by Stanley. A little spoiler for you. Anyway, well, getting into our connecting points because yes, we've gushed long enough and we could continue to do so, but we'll wrap it up with our connecting points. And Aaron, if you'd like to get us started, I'd love to have that.
1: Yeah, man. Um, As I mentioned, I had a ton and I've talked about basically anything that could be a connecting point already. So the one thing that I saved, I think this goes to kind of my heart in the moment, <laughs> if it were. Peter and Gwen connecting and what comes after that is just, I think, a beautiful, brilliant sequence in this movie that really... Starts to transition Peter and and it kinda I guess it kinda shows a combination of Peter and Spider Man, Peter becoming Spider Man in in a perfect little snapshot of a of a space before he has to fully live in these two identities. And the romantic in me can't help but love it. And again I point out Mark Webb, this whole sequence feels to me very five hundred days of summerish. The way Peter and Gwen are flirting, you brought this scene up earlier. They're in this completely empty school hallway, and they keep nervously saying to each other, oh, I'm just, I'm super busy. Yeah, I know. Right now, I'm just, I'm, like, totally busy, and like we'll get together later, but I know. But, like, right now, I can't because I'm just super busy. They're completely alone in this hallway. There's, like, nothing going on. It is the most high school nervousness and awkward thing, and it feels so natural to anybody who's ever been in high school and flirted with a girl or a significant or other, someone that they were into When you don't know how to express that. And you're nervous and scared that that person's going to reject you. And Peter leaves and is just grinning. He's got that absolute boyish happiness about him. And he goes to skateboard and you can tell that he is doing this. And he's pushed on by that high of having just flirted with Gwen. And he feels... Validate. He feels loved, or not loved, but he—I don't know—he feels like attracted. He feels like she's attracted to him, and it—and it does. It it kicks your endorphins up, and so he starts doing all these different tricks, and then he starts testing out his powers. And the soundtrack I mentioned—this is where the Coldplay song "Till Kingdom Come" plays, and the chorus of it is "Say so you'll wait, you'll wait for me." It's perfect. I think it works out great along with the narrative of what's going on. And to me, Patrick, like, this is storytelling. We are seeing Peter Parker. He's so excited from this moment of affection with Gwen and simultaneously understanding what he can do throughout this amazing training montage as his spider abilities are developing and he's starting to kind of get a hold of those and control them. It's a perfect storm. It is maybe the moment in the film where he is the most happy He is the most at peace. Like if we could take a snapshot and be like, I want Peter to be able to live like this forever. Like it's what we all want, right? It's that moment. We want to bottle it and just keep it going just like that for the rest of our lives. And that's not how life works. And I love it because it is such genuine realism and joy. And I think these are the moments that we need to become invested in characters so that later we are appropriately affected when the struggles and the tragedies come. Yeah, you get
0: vested in it, and it makes it more meaningful later on. And I think that it's a really fantastic sequence of events because of what you mentioned, it's high school. And I'm a sucker for high school movies, and this is technically one, so whatever. But it's also a superhero movie, and my connecting point was a superhero moment. I recently finished the Fred Rogers biography that the documentary that came out a couple of years ago was based off of and was floored by all the stuff that I learned. I I miss Fred Rogers. (laughs) I wish that I had all of his shows, all 887 of them in a collection so that I could watch them so that I could see the life that Fred had on screen, apart from the little bit that I'm getting from Amazon Prime with my son uh who's enjoying him as well uh but what i remember re- reading from the book was that he always had this sense of when tragedy was happening 911 or a bombing or a shooting the words of fred rogers essentially said always look for the people that are helping and he said he's always pleasantly surprised at The amount of people that actually come out of the woodwork to help COVID-19, seeing the amount of help that's being given by businesses and to businesses and to people and for people and by people. And so I fully admit that this moment was inspired by that, that this was probably like you, one of many connecting points, but it stood out because of that mentality that I had. This is a superhero moment, but it wasn't just Spider-Man being the superhero. This is what I'm aptly calling the crane technique. (laughs) And it's the moment, Aaron, where early on in the film, he rescues a boy who is the son of C. Thomas Howell, which I thought was really funny. I'd forgotten that he was in this movie. And later on, we find out that C. Thomas Howell is construction manager, foreman, whatever. And he sees that Spider-Man has to get to Oscorp. And so he lines up, he gets his guys all across this section of New York who are able to control the cranes, and he has them all line up in a way that Spider-Man can swing from where he is to Oscorp. And there's so much about this moment that I absolutely adore. Part of it is just it's the superhero moment. Part of it is what our friend Matt Fletcher kind of finds annoying, which is the people of New York taking care of their own. But, Aaron, that's what a Spider-Man story is. The supporting characters in stories about Spider-Man are not just Gwen, Mary Jane, Aunt May, Uncle Ben, J. Jonah Jameson. It's New York. New York is a supporting character in the mythology of Spider-Man. And this, I think, was a perfectly executed representation of what the people of New York think of their beloved web crawler. The cranes line up and he starts swinging. And this is where the practical effects really shine for me. You see him swinging. You see the webs hit the crane. You see him do his acrobats. And every time he lets go, you see like the residual... Webbing that just stays there. It doesn't feel like a cartoon. It feels real. I feel like these cranes actually exist in New York. They don't feel like they're part of a cartoon universe. And then finally he gets to Oscorp and there's no applause. There's no, yay, look what we did. No, it's the people being people and seeing where help was needed and being helpful to a citizen of their city. Because they knew that he was capable of doing more than they could, but not without them. So this was a dual superhero moment for me, where you had the citizens of a city and their beloved superhero working together to fight a common enemy, a common conflict. And I like the fact that, like a lot of things in this movie, Spider-Man can't do things alone. He can't be isolated. I think this is a lesson that Peter learns that he needs the people in his life. He needs the Aunt Mays, the Gwen Stacy's to be able to live his best life and be the superhero that he is meant to be, not just in spandex, but outside being the scientist and being able to influence those that he comes into contact with later on. To me, this sets up a great Sequel before we know what the sequel is of where do we go from here? And this is the Peter Parker that I want to follow. The Peter who has these adventures in New York, but's also a scientist and a quirky high school kid and someone who's just trying to get through each day to figure out what's best for him, but also, and probably more importantly, what's best for the city that he's serving. And so this moment felt very, very real to me it felt very consistent with the rest of the movie and it was also just really cool to watch i i don't think anybody who likes spider-man can tell you that one of their favorite parts is seeing him swing seeing him pull on the webs and do these acrobatic tricks seeing him kind of posture himself or do these little kind of poses it's so comic book-esque in a world that feels real and it's perfectly balanced for me.
1: I couldn't agree more. It was maybe my number two for connecting point. It was on my short list of of millions of connecting points, but yeah, it, it is the most memorable epic cinematic moment of this film for sure. That moonlight glistening and just the way that he rockets through the air, especially with us playing the game right now, I think it enhances this because what's great about this sequence you can see him he actually has to aim and grab onto something he's not just whipping up into the air and you see him swing and you have no idea where his web is attaching to like he is aiming hitting the crane swinging off the crane and this movie does not overdo this is a great example of not overusing slow motion It only uses it a couple times and it does the very, you know, typical like (sniffs) with the sound. I actually love it, but like here it's perfect because he's flipping around and kind of coming down in slow motion and then flashing forward. It is awesome and your heart's pounding and you're just, you're just doing that wow thing. You're like, man. And that to me is what that video game is successful at because it makes you feel exactly like this movie makes you feel when Peter is swinging like you are experiencing that. And that is phenomenal. And other films, they've done a good they've done a fine job of, of watching watching Peter swing around is never boring. But I think this is like indicative of just a little snapshot of maybe my favorite just one scene of it ever, because it like you said, it's it's just so perfect on so many levels. And the emotional aspect is another one of those. Absolutely.
0: Well, that wraps up another episode here at Felon Film. And coming up this time next week, we dive into the sequel, appropriately named The Amazing Spider-Man 2, hopefully continuing what has already been a fantastic conversation. Aaron, it's been fun, my friend. We'll talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you.